I want to talk today about a subject you may have heard before, and if you haven't, you're going to hear about it today. It's about a question that comes up, and it uh, doesn't come up as often as it seems that it used to, but it did come up to me uh, about a month ago, and someone was uh, putting this forward, and they were, in my opinion, confused about this question. Did Elijah really go to heaven? Now, you might wonder, well, what in the world is he talking about? Well, go to uh, 2 Kings. Go to 2 Kings and take a look at chapter 2 and verse 11. And this is the verse that is being referenced here when it says, and as they uh, still went on, this is talking about Elijah and Elisha, as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So that is a verse that people read. And the average person reads about the fiery chariots and, you know, swooping down and taking Elijah up into heaven. And they assume, well, I, I think it's, it's a reasonable assumption on some levels, they assume that it means Elijah was taken up into the spiritual realm where he would then live on in the presence of God. And it seems like a kind of a logical conclusion, especially for people who believe that human beings possess an immortal soul, which never dies. But it's a false conclusion. It's a false conclusion um, which is inconsistent with many clear statements found elsewhere in Scripture. Go to John 3, verse 13. Jesus is speaking here to Nicodemus, and he's talking about a number of things. Uh, he's talking about rebirth and, uh, you know, spiritual rebirth and so forth. And in the midst of all that, he says this, verse 13, No one, meaning no human being, has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, he's saying no one has ascended to heaven except me. So Jesus said something that should make us stop and think twice about what we read in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. We appear to have reached a point where Scripture is clearly contradicting itself, don't we? Because here it says one thing, and here it says something that is the opposite. How do we deal with stuff like this? Are there ways that we should have in our mind to approach situations like this? Yes, there are. One, assumptions. Assumptions. Assumptions are powerful things. And this doesn't apply only to Scripture, but that is our uh, field of play right now. If you read scripture with false assumptions in your mind, you're going to start interpreting the Bible wrongly, right? So I think we always ought to 
think about our assumptions. And you know, it can get worse because false assumptions, false conclusions, false ideas lead to other false ideas. For example, you know, if humans have an immortal spirit, then it must go on living somewhere after death, which makes you think, be think, 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 and therefore, oh, well, living on in some heavenly realm with God seems like a good option. I mean, doesn't it? If you have that assumption, that's kind of where you end up going, right? Problem is that it's not a biblically sound conclusion. And the Bible tells us that, uh, you know, belief that you're gonna live on as if you were an immortal being like God is a very ancient idea. So it's, an, it's a long-standing assumption. It goes back to the very beginning in Genesis 3. I'm going to just go there and review this. I know I've mentioned it before, but in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 4, we're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you're not gonna die. You will not surely die. It's the, going, going back to the, the big one, right? It is the original lie. I know I've covered this before, but it's a very important assumption that we carry with us and then we start interpreting scripture based on our assumptions. And we've, there are other assumptions that need to be reviewed as well. Um, this is the original life foisted upon humanity by the, the father of lies, Satan, the serpent of old. And it's a lie that humanity really loves and hold on to dearly. So, what about our situation? Oh. How do we answer Bible contradictions? How do we answer Bible contradictions? And I'm gonna take a look at this question and sort of show how this applies to the scripture related to Elijah and how we can use sound thinking to work our way through verses that seem to be problematic. Here's an important perspective that you ought to have when reading God's word. If two verses or two parts of scripture seem contradictory, the first thing that you or I or any of us should question is whether we properly understand what the scripture's saying. Very often it seems that we're told, well, the first thing we should do is say, well, the scriptures are just unreliable. But as believers, we should approach the scripture saying, well, no, the scripture's reliable, so therefore there's, there's something, something's amiss in this chain of thinking. And I think the first place we ought start is with ourselves. Have I got the right assumptions here? Is that necessarily how the scripture needs to be read? And there's plenty of places you can apply this. So the assumptions that you have when reading God's word can dramatically affect the way you understand the scripture to be speaking. Let's take a look at five keys to sound biblical 
understanding, okay? And this is how I, I want to use the example of Elijah to illustrate how these work, um, some more prominently than others. But in John 10, verse 35, we have our first principle. John 10, verse 35, very important one. Jesus speaking again, and he's teaching from the script, or he's actually answering naysayers here, and they're trying to trip him up with scripture by showing him some contradictions and stuff like that. And he talks about things, and he says this in, uh, in the course of, of his teaching here in verse 35, uh, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, referring to the psalm that they're discussing. And then he says this, scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, scripture cannot be set aside. It cannot be cast aside. You can't say, oh, well, that, 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 hmm, that doesn't fit into the way I see things, so I'm just going to discard that scripture, or I'm going to accept that it's a contradiction, or so forth. Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be self-contradictory. The internal logic of it does not fall apart. Okay, our second principle is found in 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, and verse 20. Peter, writing here, says this. Um, he's actually talking about him working on a project here to get all the writings together. If you read the first chapter, this is the context. And in the midst of telling them about, uh, them about the project, that he's bringing all the scrolls together and putting this project together for them, he says this. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's Word does not have one meaning for you and a different, unique, special meaning for you. It has an objective meaning that is available to all people who read it. And that is not where we as a society are coming from these days. Uh, you know, there's a sort of a present fad that, well, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth and we can both be okay with that. You know, your truth is different from my truth. And you can have that, and it's cool, and I, you know, I'm kind of okay with your truth as long as you don't impose on me and try and get me to believe your truth. So truth is like, you know, individualized. Great. Well, that fad for this whole concept that, you know, this can, you know, what's true for me versus what's true for you is complete foolishness. Feels good to some, I suppose, but it's foolishness, and it's not the way to approach Scripture. You can't take the scripture and say, well, I think it means this. Okay, so another principle. Uh, Isaiah 28, verse 10. I hope I got this right. I was fiddling around last night. My power went out. We had all kinds of problems last night. Um, Isaiah is, is talking here about preaching the message and people just not receiving it, the hassles that he's having with people. And in verse 10, he says this, for it, the teaching, is precept upon precept, precept upon precept. 
line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And I think sometimes people approach biblical instruction, you know, and think, why is it so tedious? You know, why does, why does this guy get up here and he's talking about verses and we're just flipping around in the Bible and we're talking about history and all this stuff? Well, that's how you understand scripture. Uh, a good way of putting this, which the church has used many, many years, is we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And that's a principle we're going to see writ large with this, you know, Elijah thing. Fourth principle, we seek and follow instruction from those Christ has appointed to provide instruction. Go to Malachi 2, verse 7. For the Old Testament version of this, Malachi 2, verse 7. True instruction is in his mouth, the priest, and no wrong was found on his lip. No, no, verse 7. I was reading verse 6. Okay, so verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So we should seek out instruction. Um, Ephesians, for the New Testament spin on it, tells us this in Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 14. Paul speaking here says, and he, that being Jesus Christ, the head of the church, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we seek out instruction from people that God has appointed, but also, you know, they, they kind of have the time to dig in on some subjects. Finally, and this is very important, Go to Acts 17. Acts 17. You have a responsibility. You know, you hear instruction. And there's a lot of teachers in this world. And the church's position is that uh, don't believe us. Believe what you read in the scriptures. And our role is to kind of point you to the right places in scripture. And then you need to verify that what you're being taught is true. So Acts 17, verse 10 through 11 uh, Paul is going to Berea. And it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Is what this guy Paul is teaching us from the scriptures actually there? Or is he just kind of like going off on his own thing? And you and I have a responsibility to take what we hear and check it out. So don't believe me. Only believe me as I help you understand what the scriptures say. Now let's take some of these techniques to provide an explanation for 2 Kings 2, verse 11. An explanation that does not contradict what we read elsewhere in scripture. Timelines. People love timelines. 
I love timelines. Elijah was actually still around after Kings 2, verse 11. And I put this timeline here together to help show and illustrate visually how that all works. So this is Elijah and the transfer over to Elisha. Here are the kings, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Isaiah and this other king, very similar name, Joram, Ahaziah, Ahab. And I've worked these out. This is how their reigns flowed. And then there's this key event right here, this war with Moab. And then there's the receipt of this mysterious letter from Elijah. And this is the timeline of how it all kind of flows out. So scripture tells us that Elijah wrote a letter to King Jehoram of Judah and sent it to him several years after the chariot of fire whisked him away. <coughs> let's go to 2 Chronicles 21. 2 Chronicles 21. And just to kind of set the stage here um, in verse 9, just so we know which king we're talking about, uh, it says, in, in these days Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots, etc., etc., etc. So we're talking about this king, Jehoram. And then drop down to verses 12 through 15. It says this, And a letter came to him, came to Jehoram, from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, etc., 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 you're going to be judged by God. God's not happy with you. Okay, so the king referred to here is this man named Jehoram, all right? Now, how do we know that this letter, which came from Elijah to Jehoram, happened after the events that were recorded in 2 Kings 2, verse 11? How do we know that it came after? So there's a letter. How do we know it came after? Let's turn to Scripture for the answer. Let's turn to Scripture for the answer. Go to 2 Chronicles, and we're in 21, chapter, same chapter. Go back to verse 1. It tells us this. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. He died. And he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. So this guy here, Jehoshaphat, dies. And... Jehoram takes over. And I've left the overlap here because there's a certain vagueness to the actual dates. Okay? But that man here dies. But his son takes over as king. Okay? After he's dead. So the king receiving the letter was Jehoram. Right? And we also know that he became king after the death of his father, Jehoshaphat. Right? We just read that in verse 1. And he had been a co-king with him, a co-regent with his father before that. 
Okay, and there's a scriptural reference to that as well, which some people get confused on, but that's what's going on. Now, once Jehoram had, had done some things, he, you know, his father died, he took over as king, he, he did some stuff, and I'm going to paraphrase what it says here in chapter 21. So uh, once Jehoram had firmly established himself as king, he murdered all his brothers and all the other possible rivals for the throne. Then he went to war against the Edomites, and he had to deal with this revolt in, the, in Libna, all right? Um, and then because of all the bad stuff that it was happening and all the bad stuff he was doing, Elijah sent him a letter because he was a, he was a bad boy. And based on everything going on here, uh, would have been kind of several years into Jehoram's rule after his father's death. Okay, so these things are happening, these events are happening. Now what's really interesting, oh, I don't need to change that, is Jehoshaphat, who when the letter came was dead, actually had some interesting interactions with Elisha. So let's take a look at that. Go to 2 Kings 3. And uh, verse 9 through 12. Jehoshaphat and Elisha, well, they met. And this is an important piece of information here. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9 through 12, it says, So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they, they were going to fight the Moabites, okay, they're going to war against the Moabites. So uh, let's see. Um, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army and, or the animals that followed them. And then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat, so Jehoshaphat's alive at this point, okay? Jehoshaphat's alive at this point. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So during the years when Jehoshaphat was alive and kicking, he wasn't dead, he was alive, he was active and uh, you know, moving around as king of Judah, going to war even, Elisha, we see, is already acting as the lead prophet in Israel. He is the prophet of the Lord. So Elisha has already taken over from Elijah. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, you know, he, he was operating in alliance with Israel. Things aren't going well. And he says, let's have the, uh, you know, the word of the Lord. Let's find the prophet of the Lord here in Israel. And uh, so, the, you know, he, he's told, well, this guy Elisha is the one you want. And then there are some credentials that are offered. What, how, what's, what, what tells you this Elisha guy is, is worth wasting your time on? He used to pour water over the hands of Elijah, which is a kind of an old-fashioned way of saying he was the disciple of Elijah. 
He was his personal assistant. And then he took over. That's where that little phrase is helpful in understanding the con you know, what's going on here. So the transfer of office of, of prophet of the Lord from Elijah to Elisha had already taken place by the time this war with Moab is going on here. And Jehoshaphat's still alive and his son Jehoram hasn't yet taken over. Okay? The entire sequence of events with the fiery chariot taking Elijah away, well, it was done. The entire sequence of events and that fiery chariot taking Elijah away had already happened so that Elisha could take over. That's, that's what that whole dramatic sequence is all about. That's why then Elisha was presented to Jehoshaphat as the prophet of the Lord. This is your guy. This is the main prophet in the land. But then, you know, years later, Elijah is still able to send a letter to the king here after Jehoshaphat's dead. Sorry about that. That's kind of a mistake there. I'll fix that. <clears throat> after Jehoshaphat's dead, which we read about in 2 Chronicles. Okay? So Elijah is still able to send a letter to Jehoshaphat's successor, Jehoram. Therefore, years after he had this chariot ride in the fiery chariot, Elijah must have been still alive somewhere in the land, not in the heavenly presence of God. I don't think the postal service goes into the heavenly realm. It just doesn't. So I'm going to put it to you this way. Elijah was offered a retirement. So why all the theatrics? If Elijah's going to retire, he's still going to be in the land. Why all the theatrics of having him whisked away by a fiery chariot, you know, zooming through the sky? What's the point? Well, I believe that the point, this is, you know, kind of looking at the logic of it, to make it very clear that there was a succession of ministry going on here. It had God's stamp of approval. So the details about how the office of prophet of the Lord in the land of Israel was transferred from Elijah to Elisha is very elaborate. It's very elaborate and it's spectacular. And everybody watching, and there were witnesses, would have no doubt that the office of the prophet of the Lord or the master of the sons of prophecy was passing from one person to another. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 2, You're probably already there, and let's read this. So now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. You, you stay behind and I'm going to move on. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And Elijah said to him, Okay, Elisha, just to stay here, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. 
So they came to Jericho. And then the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and they said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. I don't want to talk about it right now. And then Elijah said to him, Okay, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it and he struck the water, and the water parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. That's pretty spectacular. And when they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I can do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. And he said, hmm, you've asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his clothes and he tore them into two pieces and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and he stood at the banks of the Jordan and he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. So, during the years when, um, well, where am I? No. Okay. There's a lot happening here. That's what I want to talk about. There's a lot happening here. And I read the whole thing because I think it's important because it talks about this succession of ministry. So what, 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 just let me give you a quick recap of what I see, important points of what I see going on here. One, uh, Elisha is told, you know, stay behind and I'm going to go on and it, 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 three times. Kind of like with, you know, Jesus and Peter, right? Uh, he's told, no, stay behind. And each time Elisha, you know, kind of goes through, no, no, I'm totally committed to you and I am going to keep on moving forward with you. And it's almost as if Elisha is being asked three times, are you sure you want to do this? And Elisha comes back and says, yes, I am with it. I'm all in and he keeps moving forward, right? So it happens three times. We're also told that... Uh, 50 of the sons of the prophets were going along with him to witness the event. And Elijah, he'd been their leader. He'd been, you know, kind of the leader of the sons of the prophets, if you read on in Kings. And now Elisha was going to take over. It was important that people knew what God was up to. And the dramatic way it was done would leave no doubt that the transfer from Elijah to Elisha had God's approval and authority, and God's spirit was behind it. What else? The miracle, the miracle of the parting of the waters is a demonstration of God's power, right? So Elijah parts the waters, showing God was working through him, and then Elijah picks up the cloak and he does the same thing, showing that God's power was now working through Elisha. It's a transfer of power and authority. Here's an interesting little uh, tidbit here. Elisha asks for a double portion. 
And I don't believe that means that he had twice as much of God's Holy Spirit as Elijah. I don't think so. It's possible, but that's not how I read it. The phrase is actually, it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17. So it's an old covenant thing. It's something that is spelled out in scripture where a father gives a double portion to his firstborn son when he has more than one wife. So it's the firstborn son of his first wife, which God considers the firstborn son. And the double portion is so that everybody knows that the first son of the first wife is the official heir. So the double portion is about inheritance rights. And Elijah is basically asking that, yes, he indeed be considered Elijah's successor. He inherits, you know, all the stuff that goes along with the office of prophet of the Lord. And the cloak, I think, is, is pretty obvious. The cloak falls from Elijah, is picked up by, by Elisha, and used to part the waters, showing the presence of God's power and authority. Um, the cloak is clearly a symbol of the prophet of the Lord. That's where we get the phrase, picking up the mantle picking up from the one who went before. And now the leader of the, of the sons of the prophets is Elisha. And the prophet of the Lord that you will look to is Elisha. And that is why... Oh, I put this, the, the chart away. And that is why when Jehoshaphat asks, is there a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of? He is told, Elisha, that's your man. And 2 Kings 2, verse 11 says this. Now, as they still went on and they talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. Okay. Now, all the stuff that I've said doesn't change the fact that the scriptures say Elijah was taken up into heaven, do they? And I've given you a lot of, of kind of kept the dust in the air, right? But it still says Elijah was taken up into heaven, right? So, I, I, you know, by some sort of an angelic chariot. And this is where people get confused. And they come up with interpretations that contradict what is said elsewhere in Scripture. So, Elijah went up to heaven. Well, we're still kind of stuck, aren't we? Even though we know that Elijah was there to give the letter to Jehoram, the scripture still says he went up into heaven. Well, what does the word heaven mean? All right, the answer lies in understanding what the word heaven means. And once again, to get the answer, we turn to scripture. We want to define heaven. Do you go to Wikipedia? Do you open Webster's Dictionary? You might. And it's going to give you a very, you know, popular, well, this is what heaven means. But what does the heaven, heaven, the word heaven mean in scripture? You go to the scripture to interpret scripture. And in various places, the Bible uses the word heaven in three different ways to signify three different things. Has anyone heard this before? Anyone heard this before? You ever gone through it before? A few. Okay, so heaven is used in three different ways in Scripture. One, heaven, as used in Scripture, can indicate Earth's atmosphere. 
A good example of that is Genesis 1, verse 20. Genesis 1, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Birds fly in the air. They're not flying in God's throne room. They're flying in the air. Okay? Um, the firmament of the heavens. Go to 2 Kings 7, verse 2. And there's, there's lots of places you could find this. I, I'm just trying to pick some that are really helpful uh, for our purposes. But 2 Kings 7, verse 2 says, um, <clears throat> about the right, yeah. Uh, this is showing it in 2 Kings so that we know that the person who put the scriptures together here kind of uses heaven in the same way. Chapter 2 says, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, and there'd been a big, there'd been a big uh, drought going on. And Elisha was you know, going to release them from the drought based on God's word. So this uh, captain says to Elisha, the man of God, if the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? Can rain actually happen? So there's an example in 2 Kings where heaven is referring to earth's atmosphere. Where does rain come from? Rain comes from the heavens. And the scriptures say that plenty of times. And by that it means Earth's atmosphere. Rain doesn't come from outer space. It doesn't come from God's throne room. It comes from Earth's atmosphere. Now, the other way we will see heaven used is to mean outer space. The vast expanse of the universe, you know, which we tend to call outer space. I don't think they used that phrase back in, in uh, ancient times. But a good example of that is Psalm 8, verse 3. Pretty well-known example. Uh, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So the heavens is referring to this place where the moon and the stars are. The vast expanse of the universe that's out there, outer space. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 15, another good Good example. Genesis is often setting down some very foundational principles that are used often. And here's one, Genesis 1 verse 15 through 17 says, And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and give light upon the earth. And it was so, and, the God, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night, and the stars. Okay. And God said, set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth. So once again, here we see heaven referring to the expanse of the universe where the stars are, where the moon is, where the sun is. Birds don't fly there. It's outer space. Okay. Third, it is the place where the throne room of God is, the dwelling place of God. And for that, go to Isaiah 63. Verse 15, a prayer directed towards God says, Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation where you live. 
go to 1 Kings 8. Showing it once again in the context of the time of these scriptures. First uh, Kings verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 27. This is Solomon speaking here at the, uh, the prayer that he's giving when the ark comes to the temple. Uh, verse 27, he asks a question, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built. So he's saying, well, God is bigger than heaven, highest heaven. And then drop down to verse 30, same, same basic prayer, same person, and he says, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when, you, when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven where you are, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So here I think Solomon is using all three versions of heaven. The heaven, the highest heavens, and the place where you live. Okay? So God is not in the sky. God is not in outer space. Not hiding behind the planet Jupiter where no one can see. That's not how it works, and that's not what the scriptures say. He exists outside and apart from the material universe. As Solomon said, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. He exists outside of and apart from the material universe that he created. I believe he's also, you know, apart from the throne that he sits upon. So now, look, because scripture cannot be broken, we should assume that the heaven into which Elijah went must have therefore been which of these three options? Anyone? The Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. The Earth's atmosphere. Now, let me just pile on with a few reasons why that kind of is backed up by what we read. Earth's atmosphere is the only heaven in which a whirlwind could occur. You don't get whirlwinds in the deep darkness of space. You don't get whirlwinds. Tornadoes don't happen in God's throne room, not that we're aware of. But they do happen on Earth. Winds whip up, things get carried away, kind of like, you know, Wizard of Oz. A whirlwind, right? Another two. Fifty other people were watching Elijah go up on the fiery chariot, and they understood that he was not in heaven, but high up in the sky. They're concerned. Let's go, uh, so we're there in um, Second Kings. I don't think I read this the first time I went through it. But if you read in Second Kings 2, verse 15 through 18, Second Kings, yeah, uh, now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, and they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed on the ground before him, and they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him down on some mountain or in some valley. So they, they, they knew he was up in the air, and they were concerned, well, maybe you know, he was let down by you know, for some reason on a mountaintop and we need to help the guy. 
So they're understanding that he was taken up into the sky. Am I right? Finally, and I think this is most important, understanding this reference as anything other than the Earth's atmosphere creates conflict and contradiction with Jesus' clear statement that no person has ascended to heaven except himself. Remember, one of the principles of interpretation we should begin with is that if two verses seem contradictory, the first thing we should question is not the scripture or the validity of its transmission to us. The first thing we should question is whether we properly understand what the scripture is saying. Okay, so let's just carry on with the story. I think it's interesting. Why remove Elijah from the scene? Why? Why would God want to remove Elisha from his place as master, leader of the sons of prophets? Um, you know, we read about Elisha and his career, and he basically kept his office until the day he died. But Elisha, or sorry, Elijah, not, not quite, you know, no, he was given a retirement. Okay, well, by the time the events in 2 Kings chapter 2 take place, Elijah had served as the prophet of the Lord in the land for 25, at least 25, long, difficult years. And he had served as the leader of the other prophets, caring for them, instructing them, protecting them. Uh, he had predicted drought, famine. So he'd been through some harrowing times. And he'd gotten intense death threats from King Ahab. Read through his life. It's very, very tempestuous. And he'd had to run for his life from assassins sent out by Jezebel, the queen. And he was depressed, and he was tired, and he was worn out. Go to second, or sorry, 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's just take a look at this. I think it's interesting about how God so deals with us. So I'll read this, this whole section here, okay, just so we know where is Elijah coming from. So Ahab, he'd been king. This is going back a few years then. Ahab told Jezebel, the queen, his wife, all that Elijah had done. Now Elijah, this is right after the whole scene on Mount Carmel where he'd had this, you know, head-to-head -head with the prophets of Baal and <laughs> God brought fire down to burn up the animal there on Mount Carmel and all the, all the prophets of Baal were put to the sword. Jezebel's told about it. That he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. And when Jezebel, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them. I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. You're a dead man, Elijah. Then he was afraid, and he rose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came, and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. Whoa! That's kind of why my interpretation is that he was depressed. He was discouraged. He said, well, he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough, I've had enough. 
Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous, zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So I've been doing all this great stuff in your name, and what am I getting? You know, they want to kill me. They're hunting me down. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces and rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And this is God's way of showing, don't get discouraged by the day of small things. I'm working. This is me at work. It's not about numbers, etc., etc. That's a different message for a different day. Verse 13, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, Again, I have been very zealous, jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take my life and the Lord said to, them, to him, Go, return on your way. Go to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So I've got, so I've got a few things I want you to do. You're, you're still in the office. Let's take care of some, some business. And then also anoint Jehu, the son of Nishmi, so anoint him to be future king over Israel. And, this is important, and Elisha. Go find this man, Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Albad or Abel Mahola, and you shall anoint him to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. We're gonna do, we're gonna, there's gonna be a little bit of payback going on here. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing in a field with 12 yoke of oxen. And he was uh, standing there with the 12th and Elijah passed by him and he put his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. So he was tasked with going out, letting this man Elisha know that he was gonna succeed. He was going to take over from him. This was God's plan. And uh, you know, the Bible's not explicit, but it appears to me that God was going to allow Elijah to retire. 
and have a younger man named Elisha take over. And the transfer of leadership from Elijah to Elisha began by having Elisha serve as Elijah's assistant. And after this sequence, he serves as his assistant for a number of years, presumably so he could be trained for the task before he's handed the, you know, all the responsibilities. And, you know, does this mean that Elijah was a, was a failure? You know, he couldn't hack it. You know, replace him with someone else. You know, ah, you know, throw him away. No, I think that this is a really good example for us of God's compassion. Here's this guy, he's worn out. God doesn't always operate the same way, but here's this guy, he's worn out, and how does God respond to him? All right, you know, you're depressed, you've said some kind of rash things, I'm gonna give you someone to take your place. You know, you, you train him for a while, and then we're gonna move on. To me, that's God's compassion at work. He didn't just say, you know, Elijah, you loser. No. He set it up for a succession of the ministry, and I think it's a wonderful example of God's kindness and compassion for human frailty. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Elijah, you know, he was a little disappointed that Elijah let it, let it get to him that way, but he dealt with him in a very compassionate way. Okay, so a scripturally driven conclusion. Elijah was relieved of his responsibilities and taken away so that Elisha could take over. And he was simply removed from where the action was, okay, and he was taken to a different place, a place from which he could send a letter later on in life. He was retired. He was not terminated. He was retired, okay? He was uh, taken to a place away from all the hubbub and the action. You know, it's like old people want to go to a quiet, warm place. They don't want to be necessarily in the heart of Manhattan. Oh, some do. Okay, so he was removed from where all the hubbub and the action was. All the people who wanted to kill him. He was not taken to the third heaven beyond the material realm. He was taken to some unknown place in the land, and that is how Elijah could send a letter to King Jehoram years after he'd been removed from the area, because he was still on earth. That is a scripturally driven conclusion. That is how we can use the principles that I talked about to take a scripture that on its surface can be very difficult, contradictory. The Bible goes around in circles, says this time this and this time that. Just a couple more points about Elijah. Elijah died in the faith. Clearly he died at some point, right? Go to Hebrews 11. <coughs> and this is the chapter that is just kind of like the honor roll of faithful servants of God. And there's lots of folks mentioned in here, you know, Abraham, Moses, David, prophets, and, uh, you know, Samson, Jephthah. <laughs> uh, let's read verse 32 and 34 where it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of all of everybody, you know, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets. Prophets, and that covers a lot of people, right? The prophets 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, it kind of sounds like Elijah there, right? Escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Well, Elijah is certainly one of the prophets. One of the best known prophets. When Jesus is talking about what's yet to come, when the scriptures talk about the messenger that comes you know, up to the very end, who, what name do they use? The spirit of Elijah, right? He's not a loser. <laughs> Even though he, had, you know, he got retirement, he's certainly one of the prophets referred to here. He and the other prophets of God are considered by the Bible to have died in the faith, not yet having received the promises. Drop down to verse 13, or go back to verse 13. Let's just see the context where it says that. Uh, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Then drop down to verse 39. And all these, all these men of faith and women of faith, though commended for their faith, you know, they're great people, saints, doing mighty works, did not receive what was promised. That's Elijah. He's not received the reward or promise or anything. The promises will only be received when Christ returns. This is what you'll find in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. I'm just going to go there. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, Paul speaking of the end time, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are alive at the end time will not precede the people who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And that's the resurrection. And as we read in Hebrews, nobody gets it before anybody else. It's kind of one of those cool things. You know, like if you had kids and they all, well, you're all going to get, you're all going to get it at the same time. Right? And that's how God so deals with his children. No one precedes anybody else. No one's going to be able to say, well, I was, I was resurrected first. No. Funny, you know, how childish we can be. I don't know if we'd do that. Everyone who has lived as a faithful follower of God will be raised to life at the same time. No one will precede others. And then what happens? When Christ returns, then we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to earth and we will help him administer the rule of God on earth. But that is a message for another day. <laughs>